welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The Trump administration is ready to declare mission accomplished on reuniting migrant families torn apart during a border crossing crossing crackdown. But the American Civil Liberties Union says the mission is far from over. Here's ACLU lawyer Lee Gallant speaking outside the courthouse yesterday after a hearing in front of the judge overseeing the reunifications. There are many other people that will ultimately need to be reunified. So when they say they're going to meet the deadline, it's only for those individuals they've declared to be eligible for reunification by the deadline. There are still many, many people who were deported. Joining me is Kevin Appleby, Senior Director of International Migration Policy at the Center for Migration Studies. Kevin, explain what the ACLU attorney was referring to there. So there were about uh, 3,000, close to 3,000 family separations under the family separation policy. And the administration has only reunited um, a little over 850 uh, families. They've approved reunifications for about 550 and and they've deported believe it or not 469 parents without their children so when the the attorney says they haven't finished the job it's because they certainly have not meet met that 3000 family separation threshold which they are responsible for not to mention that there are several hundred that they say say are ineligible for unification because of certain criminal penalties that they've accrued. So uh, when the administration says mission accomplished, uh, I would disagree, as would uh, the ACLU, because they certainly haven't reunited the 3,000 families that they should be reuniting. So apparently the number is 463 parents that are under review, according to the Trump administration, and the judge ordered the government to provide a list of those 463 parents. He said, what would be the explanation of not knowing where the parents are? Is it that they don't know where the parents are or that they're not giving that information out? Well, let's let's not get confused as to groups. The 463, I misspoke. I said 469. There are about 463 parents that have been deported to Central America. That's one group. They certainly don't know where they are in Central America, and the, the prospect of being reunified with their children at this point is not high. Um, there are other smaller groups that may, of parents that may not be, lo- be able to be located within the country, but that's a much smaller number. But the 463 you referred to are parents that had been deported and many say there's evidence that they were they were compelled to sign waivers to be deported because they were told that was the only way that they would be re- reunited with their children. So that needs to be investigated as well. It's it's very confusing because you hear one thing from one side and one thing from the other, and then the judge questioning everything. The Trump administration said that once immigrant families are reunited, any parents that are targeted for deportation shouldn't be allowed to leave their children behind to apply for political asylum. But that contradicts with what Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said on Fox News. She say the she said the way the process works is the parents always have the choice to take the children with them. So referring to those 
those 463 parents, these are parents that made the choice not to bring the children with them. So what's the real story? Well, the, the, the real story is that when these parents signed these waivers, the children were not with them. They had already been separated. So if, if the case, if the federal government and DHS uh, were serious about reuniting them, they would have brought those kids to their parents before they would have been deported, but they didn't. So the children remain in the country. And, and the other aspect you guys think about here is some of the parents might have thought that they were going to be reunited with their children, but some might have said, it's okay if my child stays with a relative here. That might have been part of the purpose of them coming so that their children could remain, and they might have signed knowing that. So you, you can't get into mind of the parents because they've been deported, but it, there's been evidence that there's been, you know, that they were coerced to sign these, these waivers um, on the pretense that they would be reunited with their children, and that hasn't happened. So what does the ACLU want to happen going forward? Well, they, they want an accounting for all of the 3,000 families that, you know, parents that lost their, that were separated from their children. And, and the administration really hasn't met that task in terms of all the numbers that have been separated. And in this case, it, there can't be room for error. I mean, you, you know, you can't have separate, you, know, you can't reunite, you know, 2,800 and then have 200 that you just don't re, reunite for because you can't find them. I mean, this was a mess created by the administration, which they didn't have to do. They weren't forced to do, despite what they say. So they have the ultimate responsibility to really make whole all of these families, and they're falling short of it. It'll be interesting to see what the court and what the judge says tomorrow, which is the deadline for that reunification, what he will say to that, if he'll give them more time or if he'll uh, want a, a more full accounting of what they've done. About a minute here. Does it look as if they're going to meet any part of of the deadline? Are they reuniting more families today? Well, they have a plan to reunite families at several locations. They haven't really disclosed where those locations are. So they could, you know, present to the judge tomorrow a more full list. Thanks, Kevin. Kevin Appleby, Senior Director of International Migration Policy at the Center for Migration Study. A new report released today by the Center for Strategic and International Studies found that law enforcement agencies are increasingly asking tech companies for access to digital evidence on mobile phones and apps, and about 80% of the requests are granted. Joining me is Jennifer Daxel, Daskal, a professor at American University Washington College of Law and a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Jennifer, you were a co-author of the report, and it says that the number of law enforcement requests, at least as directed at the major U.S.-based tech and telecom companies, has significantly increased over time. What is that increase? Sure, and, and thanks for having us on. Um, the, the increase is the number of requests that law enforcement is making to the major six major tech companies, um, obvious ones, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Oath, um, Apple. And what we're seeing is an increase in requests for digital evidence. Now, this isn't surprising if you think about how much information um, has been increasingly digitalized over the last um several years, um, law enforcement is finding increasingly that information it needs to solve 
criminal cases is both digital and in the hands of these service providers. So what I'm looking for is how much is that increase? You say it's increased, but how much? Do you have a number? Yes, over the last, in 2017, there were about 130,000 requests. Um, compare that to 2014, where the numbers were about 80,000 or so. So so that's a pretty significant jump. You also years. write that the response rates have been consistent. So does that mean that tech companies are complying more often? Well, the, the, the rates um, have been consistent over time, but if you, if you take the rates and the absolute numbers, then there's more cases in which law enforcement is having um, difficulty in accessing evidence, even if the rates are the same. And importantly, these numbers only capture those cases in which law enforcement has, in fact, made the request. So our report, which drew on a survey of state, local, and federal law enforcement entities and also a number of qualitative interviews, um, found that law enforcement was facing significant problems in just identifying which service providers had the kinds of information that they need in order to um, further investigate their their the the criminal activity that they were investigating, and that was one of if that was really the biggest problem that they were facing in terms of dealing with digital evidence. So, now, service providers, meaning whether it's um, you know Verizon or AT and T. Yeah, anybody. I mean, so those, so those are, are the easier ones, but we're talking about, you know, the, the law enforcement is investing in crime. They don't know whether Facebook holds the data or Google, or more importantly, which of the, you know, gazillion apps that are on our phones might have the relevant information. And so law enforcement is facing challenges in figuring out where to go um, and determining how to ask for, for the data that they, that they seek in investigating um, activity. These... Now, interesting, these are problems that can be solved. This is not an insurmountable problem. And in our report, we call for a new National Digital Evidence Office that can, that can consolidate resources and provide training and um, kind of a one-stop shop for law enforcement to go to get some of these answers to their questions. So what would that cost to have a National Digital Evidence Office and to have it staffed? So, you know, this can probably be done at relatively low cost. Obviously, the more money, the more there can be done in terms of training, in terms of providing grants to the programs that already do exist at the state and local level that are quite good and to rationalizing those. Um, but a lot of this can be done simply by, you know, reallocating um, certain grant programs, um, detailing individuals in the federal government to specifically focus on these issues. I think the biggest cost comes from the need to really staff up um, a team of experts who can help distribute the technical tools that can help interpret data once it's been disclosed and can stay on top of, um, of changes that tech companies make to their own products, which then law enforcement has to also be on top of in order to be able to determine where to go and to interpret data that's um, being turned over. Currently, there is such an entity, a federal entity. It's within the FBI. Um, it is expected to service all state and local law enforcement across the country. There's about 18,000 different offices across the country. And this center has a budget of just $11 million, which is nowhere near adequate to the need. So we call for adequate resourcing of that entity, um, giving it its kind of its own platform, its own authorization. And obviously, the more money, the better. But um, we think that there can be a lot done at relatively um, low cost. So is it different in each case where to go to find the information? For example, someone may have a Facebook account, someone else may not. 
Exactly. I mean, so in each case, um, I mean, obviously the, the investigating agent needs to understand the case. They need to know what they're looking for. But um, where to go depends on the specific facts of the case. And different providers have different protocols for, for requesting data, all of which um, law enforcement needs to be able to know and to utilize effectively. Well, well so could some of this information that the agencies are looking for be protected um, so, so certainly, I mean, so we're talking about law enforcement making requests um, via a warrant, so approved by a judge pursuant to probable cause, uh, making requests pursuant to legal processes um, that have been laid out in statute, um, often involving court authorization. So, so certainly, just because law enforcement wants it doesn't mean that it's either available or necessarily appropriate for law enforcement to get. Um, but we also have found that there are um, cases, a number of cases, in which just about everybody would agree that there is a lawful basis um, and, and consistent with rules on privacy and norms on privacy and civil liberties um, to access certain information. And they're um, being stymied not because of a lack of legal authority, but because of much more practical problems in terms of knowledge and expertise. And it seems to us that this is something that can be solved and that's given, that's been given not enough attention to date because there's been so much focus on problems associated with encryption and the debates about whether or not companies should be forced to decrypt data and that there's other what we call low-hanging fruit that's out there that could significantly um, improve law enforcement access while those other debates kind of continue to um, to, to rage on. So uh, less than a minute here. Is there any one kind of information that law enforcement agencies are looking for more than others? Um, you know, unclear. I, you know, I don't know that I can answer that. I mean, obviously, you know, often location information is often quite, quite important. The Supreme Court just issued a big case on that, um, that, that law enforcement, at least for historical information that's longer than a certain location information over a certain time period, has to be acquired by a warrant, signed off by a judge, pursuant to probable cause. Um, so that's a legal standard, but here we're talking about the practical problems of All right. the question of where to go to get it. Thanks so much, Jennifer. The Carpenter case the Supreme Court decided last term. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.